good morning everyone. You can open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. start reading, (coughs) excuse me, at verse 10. So Ephesians chapter 6, starting at verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. But that you may also, that you also may know my affairs and how I am doing. Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. I think this passage has struck different readers different ways through the ages. To some, the idea of war and warriors has not resonated. And these days it maybe especially seems disconnected from what we think of if we think of well-equipped warriors. Um, Others may find this text, it may maybe seems antiquated or or just... uh, strange description of ancient warfare and weaponry. A person dressed up in a tin suit doesn't really communicate strength and vitality and security to us today, maybe. Um, We think of a strong military being soldiers and marines with M4s and laser-guided weapons and tanks, and maybe if you think of modern warfare at all, you think of helicopters and stealth bombers and drones and all the things that are at play these days. And as non-resistant disciples living in the U.S., maybe war and warfare is just a little bit of a foreign concept to us. There may even be some people who find this uh, militaristic language just kind of weird and off-putting. Haven't we had enough religious holy war talk, some would say. Um, I have, I I thought a lot about how through the ages this has been processed by the readers. Um, This passage is not antiquated, it's ageless. There may be things about it that seem a little old-fashioned, but this passage really couldn't be any more relevant to us 
we can't replace the items of armor with contemporary modern items. Um, it doesn't really work to try the rocket launcher of righteousness or the drone of truth or try to mash in modern um, things you'll find in a uh, modern book. Um, not only because it would just be silly, but it would lose the point. Paul Paul makes he, he uses metaphors, he, he makes um, illustrations out of this, and part of that point has to do with the part of the body these pieces of armor cover. This passage is also ageless because humanity hasn't changed. Our spiritual needs are not different. Our spiritual needs haven't changed. The evil one's still active. He's just as active now as he was in the garden. Um, believers there in Ephesus who got this message first, believers in every city through every age since have the same need for Christ and his power. Also, this passage is rooted in the Old Testament. Um, I've often thought about Paul possibly, so we know he was a prisoner at the time of writing this, um, he was very much aware of Roman soldiers and could very easily have been looking at one or looking at more than one of them um, at the time of writing it. Um, and I have often maybe had that mental image in my head of Paul there in captivity, you know, kind of glancing over at the, the soldier there in his gear as he um, wrote. But his language here is also influenced by some imagery we have in the Old Testament. Um, I was recently reading in Isaiah and struck by how much um, the Old Testament refers to, and especially Isaiah, um, God and even um, his Christ as a warrior, um, uses uh, wording that uh, would give the, give the picture of God's people as troops um, who are in need of God's strength. And some of the verses then that I went back and, and pulled out um, that I had thought about in Exodus 15, it says very plainly in verse 3, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord, or Jehovah, is his name. In Psalm 18, verse 39, You have armed me with strength for the battle. You have subdued under me those who rose up against me. And in Psalm 35, verses 1 through 3, this is the Psalm of David, Plead my cause, O Lord, with those who strive with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and stand up for my help. Also draw out the spear and stop those who pursue me. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. And a couple of verses from Isaiah 42. Uh, no, one from 42 and one from 52. Isaiah 42, 13. The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yes, shout aloud. He shall prevail against his enemies. In Isaiah 52, verse 7, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. So Paul may very well have been looking at a Roman soldier there while in captivity but we also have roots for this passage that go back into Old Testament scripture and imagery we have of God as the king of kings. This passage is also a, um, well, a brilliant conclusion. It caps off an amazing letter. Um, and this is, this is the... Um, can come up with the word I wanted. Uh, it's but it's it's the fitting ending to this book. It's not just a new thing that Paul goes and talks about a little bit before he stops writing. Um, it's a logical way to to bring it all together. Um, the armor of God doesn't come out of nowhere here. Paul alludes to several key areas that were already mentioned in the letter. Um, there in verse. 10, where he talks about being strengthened by God's vast power. Um, I think of the 
prayers Paul prayed in chapter 1 at the end of the chapter, um, in chapter 3, where Paul prays about um, us being strengthened by God's power. There's also in um, the in the section here to close this to close this book the idea of already but not yet um, this passage reminds us that Christ has already triumphed over the powers of darkness um, which we read in chapters one three four um, uh, we have new life we're free from the fear of the power of darkness we read in chapter two verse two um, you once walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air the spirit who works in the sons of disobedience, that's where we once were, but we're not there anymore. And we have not yet experienced the full fruit of Christ's victory. Um, those powers, even though they are defeated, they still exist. We read that in 427, 516. Um, and so Ephesians 6, Paul, Paul caps it all off by reminding us that there is both already victory, but we're not yet free from being in the middle of the battle. The virtues that are connected with each of the pieces of armor, Paul um, talks about truth, righteousness, peace, the gospel, the word of God, salvation, and faith in, in the pieces of armor, and he talks about each of those things multiple times in the chapters we've already read. Um, chapter 1, uh, 4 and 5, he has big sections or, or powerful points about truth. He talks about true righteousness in chapters 4 and 5, talks about peace in chapter 2 and in chapter 4. Um, the gospel is proclaimed and made clear in chapters 1 and 3, the word of God again in chapters 1 and 5, um, salvation, faith, these are not new ideas that he finally brings out in the last chapter. And then prayer, the call to prayer here in chapter 6, especially looking at 18, 19, and 20. Um, we have things like chapter 3, verse 18, where Paul um, uh, let me see here. All the saints, um, uh, in chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, uh, the revelation is made known to me by the mystery I have written already, um, that you may understand the mystery of the knowledge of Christ. And then down in verse 9, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which was from the beginning of the ages, has been hidden in God. Um, this this idea of, of trying to to bring all saints um, to show the mystery and even the idea of boldness. None of these are new, uh, new ideas. He's reinforcing what he said. And even the putting on that we read about in this chapter, um, the putting on of armor, we had similar language back in chapter 4 toward the end of the chapter when he talks about, um, what is it, 4... 24, putting on the new man. Um, in chapter 5, we have being imitators of God. Um, and here he says, put on the full armor of God. The armor given to us is God's own armor. To put on the armor of God is to put on God himself. It means we're to be identified with him, we're to fight with his strength, we're to display his character. So this whole chapter... Um, I don't think I'd ever really thought of it quite so much as the capstone of the book before. I'd always viewed it a little bit as its own thing. Um, and yet, it very much is Paul reiterating and pulling together the pieces that he has shared already. Note that the emphasis here is not on us... Um, memorizing each piece of armor and praying it on. Um, I don't think... Well, my goal this morning is not that you all all leave making sure you can quote all the pieces of armor and exactly how they fit and work. Um, it's more about putting on the, the characteristics, the virtues that are ours through our being in Christ and being one with Christ. 
We're to put on Christ. And so, like it says there in chapter 4, verse 24, um, the biggest part of that is to recognize who we are in Christ and to live consistent with that identity. Be who you are is, is, is a theme that Paul um, Paul teaches a fair bit. Um, live your identity. Be who you really are. Recognize who you are in Christ and live consistent with that identity with those spiritual resources that are ours. And so because of this emphasis, we have confidence, we have hope, we don't live in bondage in fear. Starting back in chapter 4, Paul has been talking a lot about relational challenges we have, um, ethical concepts, and now he points out with more emphasis on the spiritual battle that exists, a word that kept coming to mind as I read this, again, was um, cosmic. Um, in, in a way, starting in chapter 4 and up through the first part of chapter 6, it feels like Paul was maybe more shoe leather. This is the details of what it's like to rub shoulders and how to live as Christians, how to live as masters and servants, how to live as husband and wife, how to live as parents and children, um, and, and as uh, part of the same body of believers in a church, and, and kind of the nitty-gritty. And here it feels like Paul steps back a little bit and points to the cosmic, the unseen, the spiritual warfare that goes deeper than we often think about because it's, it involves realms we don't see. Um, and Paul has already mentioned that we live life in the spirit. Um, he has talked about the powers of the air and the principalities. Um, he's talked about the powers of darkness and Satan. Here, it seems like he, he's just addressing it with more, more emphasis on that, that spiritual warfare part. He shows us that more is going on than meets the eye, and he doesn't want us to be ignorant of that, and he doesn't want us to forget that. We can't simply say that our relational challenges in the church or behavior challenges in the home or ethical challenges and moral challenges in society, well, those are all just the results of this or that and the other thing, but not really spiritual problems. Um, we can tend to maybe, we can tend to pretty easily, I think, fall into a, a humanistic trap and, and think that, well, that that relationship problem I'm having with brothers so and so that's not really a spiritual problem that's just a that's just a human nature thing or a, a personality thing and Paul he okay yes there are physical issues in a lot of our struggles there are psychological challenges we face we are complex beings but we can't lose sight that many of our problems are spiritual warfare issues um Maybe a better way to say that is our even our physical, psychological, whatever challenges, they are also spiritual battlegrounds. And Paul takes us then from just a moral perspective, make sure you relate in a good way, to, again, the best word I could keep coming back to was cosmic, that, that spiritual, the realm we can't see perspective, the spiritual perspective that goes beyond just getting along here and now, but what the, the deeper pieces all connected to it are. We live in a broken world. It's influenced by the God of this age, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. Um, and so we can't have a, a, a simplistic answer to the problems of this world and say, well, that's just how people are. There are deep spiritual battles happening and I'm not saying there are never answers to some of people's problems in biology and whatever. Um, but any of those answers that you may start to find, um, that you, you're not going to, they cannot and will not provide all the answers. There we go. Um, You have to take into account sin and Satan when you try to assess the problems of this world and the problems in your life. Paul, he's a 
trustworthy brother. He's an inspired apostle. Um, he is not uninformed about the real problems. He's telling us about the real unseen battle that's underneath all the visible problems. So we want to look at how to stand strong in spiritual warfare. Now, again, we don't we don't really think about war. Um, sure, we read a little bit about what's going on in Ukraine, or maybe you read about what has happened in various um, issues through history. But the reality is all of us are pretty sheltered and pretty... Um, I don't even know the word I want. We're unencumbered by the knowledge of war. Uh, we're naive. There we go. Um, I think there would have been, for a lot of the people who read this at first in, in Ephesus and even through the ages, a lot of the people who have read this and been, been blessed by what God gave us here in Ephesians 6 have probably been less... Um, disconnected from the realities of war than we are. And um, I had put war at the top of my notes. I don't really feel most days like I'm living in a war. Maybe part of that's a blessing, but I think part of that's a problem. Um, I feel like I'm just maybe on rails going through life. Um, this is war. I spoke a couple months ago to a young man who had gone over to Ukraine to help with some rebuilding work. And um, he had been shown some pictures and gone through a number of meetings and talks from I forget what mission organization he, he had gone with. Um, and he thought he was going to be prepared for what he saw. And he was not prepared for what he saw. And just the devastation and... Yeah, we are in a war. In verses 10 through 17, Paul is is exhorting the Ephesians and us to stand firm by God's strength in God's armor in the middle of spiritual warfare. And um, we have three uh, instructions or three three imperatives: we're to be strengthened, we're to put on the full armor of God, and we are to stand. And really, these, these instructions or these imperatives, they're the, they're the dominant ideas, and the rest of the verses are kind of explaining how that works. Um, notice that, that just opening sentence in verse 10, to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. And the next verse shows how this strength is taken advantage of. You put on the full armor of God, and also why it's necessary so that you can stand against the wiles or the tactics of the devil. Again, the point is to stand in God's strength with God's armor in the midst of spiritual warfare. And notice um, he repeats stand quite a bit here. Verse 11, verse 13, we have stand and withstand. We have, we're, we're taking our stand. Stand, therefore, in verse 14. Um, there's a... There's just a defensive element here. Um, we must resist the devil's temptations. I think of James's words, resist the devil and he will flee from you, in James 4, 7. Um, you stand holding your ground, not giving an inch. Um, you say, I'm not going to yield to temptation. I won't listen to your lies. I will not budge. We're going to consider this text in... Um, maybe we're kind of going to break it into three parts here as we look at the armor. We want to be aware of the battle, then we want to be equipped with God's armor, and we want to be devoted to prayer. And through this, we will stand firm against the enemy's attack. So being aware of the battle, looking especially at verses 10 through 13, we need the Lord's strength. I think that's one of the problems... I don't think. I know that's one of the problems. When I say I don't feel like I'm in a war, and that's a blessing and also a problem, part of the problem is then I think, well, 
I don't know that I think that I've got it all under control, but um, life will just work out. I just think the flywheel of life will keep turning and things will keep happening. Um, I'll keep being reasonably healthy. I'll keep having a job. I'll keep getting a paycheck. I'll keep being able to buy food and pay my mortgage and, and all of that. And so it's not that I think that I've got it all under control, but life just kind of goes on. Where's the strength of God in my life at that point? Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. We have to be strengthened by the power of the Lord because, well, we're going to crumble when the evil one tempts us without the power of God. If you're just coasting through life, just rolling through life, even just trudging through life without God, um, when Satan comes along and, well, shoots a fiery dart, swings his sword, whatever it is that he's going to do, throws a tripwire in front of you maybe, um, you're not going to be able to handle it outside of God's strength. And yet, how many times last week did you actually think about the strength of God in your life? Don't look in the wrong place for strength. Our strength is not in our resources or abilities. It's not in how long you've been a Christian. It's not in how well you know your Bible. Our strength is in our union with Christ. His power is where we have power. Uh, verse 19, back in chapter 1. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power? Your strength is in your union with Christ. In another passage that alludes to being a soldier, Paul says, Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That's in 2 Timothy 2. We're called to look in the right place. We're called to look to the right person for our strength. We're called to look to Jesus. So yes, we say, I am weak, but I don't have to remain weak. I will find my strength in the Lord. We have to remember who we are and what is ours in Christ the strength that's mentioned in these verses, uh, verses 10 and 11, verse 13, there is a direct implication there that the devil can be resisted if we are walking in the Lord's strength. You are not, um, you can never say the devil made me do it. The devil can be resisted in the strength of God. We need to know our enemy. Um, for the sake of time, we won't dig a lot into this. In verses 11 through 13, we have, well, Paul had already mentioned the devil back in uh, Ephesians 4, 27. Um, the Greek word he used, diabolos, means, uh, the, there are multiple definitions, but one of them is slanderer. Um, he opposes, he accuses. Um, Satan, in the Hebrew word, means adversary. He's against you. Um, there are a number of titles used for for the devil through scripture. Uh, the devil, um, he's referred to or, or shown as the head of demons and, and his minions. Um, uh, the serpent, the ruler of this world, the goddess age, the evil one. He's called the dragon in Revelation 12.9. And if you start looking at how the devil is referred to in scripture, it's very easy to see that he is wicked, powerful, and cunning. And when we consider how Paul describes the enemy, he tells us the devil is evil. He tells us the devil is against us. We need God's armor because we are facing the one who opposes God. And uh, Paul in verse 12, verse 13, he refers to the those spiritual forces of evil. In verse 13, he refers to the evil day. Um, verse 11, we, we have the wiles. Um, the devil's strategic. He's not just a blunt instrument, um, implement, maybe. Um, in verse 11, Paul tells us we have to be aware of his, his schemes and his tactics when he, when he talks about his wiles. Satan is wily, he's subtle, he's devious. Paul has pointed out some of the ways he works already. Um, 
back in chapter 4, he pointed out how um, the devil would tempt us to speak falsehoods um, or have uncontrolled anger to steal, um, to share in unwholesome speech. Um, But those are all the former ways of life, the ways we once walked before God made us alive with Christ. Um, Chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Satan can make things look attractive and desirable. He can distort the truth. He can camouflage the evil. Um, He is wily. Also, the idea of the evil one wrestling in verse 12. um, Some translations use the word battle. Um, Some use wrestle. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, against the spiritual forces of evil. The word to describe that there isn't used anywhere else in the New Testament, but it seems like it was commonly used for sport wrestling in the first century. And so um, the context of that or, or thinking through that, I would get the idea of a close, intense battle filled with manipulation and direct direct wrestling um, and strategy. Um, the devil's not hiding out in a headquarters somewhere sending commands. He's right up there trying to get you to fail. I, I did wonder a little bit how, how Paul felt writing, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. You know, Paul, you were beaten with rods, you were imprisoned, you were left for dead, you were shipwrecked, you were endangered so many times. How are you saying the battle isn't physical, it isn't flesh and blood? Paul knew that behind all those battles was the real battle, the unseen one, the the cosmic one, the spiritual battle. We have to remember that the devil has been defeated. We can have confidence because Jesus has won the victory for us. Um... Chapter 4, verse 8. When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Back in chapter 1, 19 through 22. Um, What is his exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. There is victory. Jesus has won. And it's interesting to me that Paul doesn't urge us here. He doesn't say win the battle. He says stand. So I think I need to remember... Christ has won the battle, and what I need to do is stand. The authority of the powers has been broken. Their final defeat is coming. Um, We have to stand against the schemes of the devil in our own days. Um, In some of those days, the battle is particularly intense. Even as a... This is both a, a... individual thing but there's also a, a a body aspect to it as a congregation we also have to immerse ourselves in God's word we have to seek God together in prayer we have to stand together against the evil one we're all in the battle um, from from various accounts I've read of historical battles Generally, it seems one of the scariest things for someone in battle is when they are then alone. But when they're with even just a small group of people, when they're together, it changes the whole complexion of it. We're in this together. We are in this battle together. Don't make your brother or sister try to fight it alone. Don't try to fight it alone without your brother or sister. Okay, be equipped with God's armor. Let's look here at the armor and run through these pieces. After telling us to put on the armor, Paul now describes it. And the first thing is to recognize the armor is of God. Um, So you can go read through Isaiah and look at all the ways God is a warrior. Um, 
I think a little bit of Saul um, trying to give his armor to David. Um, our king knows exactly what armor we need and fits it to us. Um, we can be ready and equipped. We don't go in, so soldiers, soldiers, marines, sailors, they don't go into to battle wearing pajamas or swimsuits or um, even, you know, their dress blues or whatever. They go into battle um, equipped for it. They wear battle gear. So what's our battle gear? Verse 14, first part of the verse, we have a belt of truth. We're girding up um, with truth. Truth is important in this book. And Paul wrote a lot about truth to the Ephesians. It is revealed in the gospel. Believers must be truth-speaking people. Um, and as we buckle on this piece of the master's armor, we, we live in his truth, we speak his truth, we display the characteristics of our king when we do that. We don't give the devil a foothold by neglecting to be a person of truth in, in our language, in our behavior, or in our attitude. And Paul, in verse uh, chapter 4, verse 21, um, gives us, he summarizes the source of truth. Um, 4.21, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. Coming to Jesus, believing in Jesus, resting in Jesus, living in Jesus is coming to the truth. Put the truth of Christ on every day. Um, preach the truth of the gospel to yourself and live that truth throughout the day. Second part of verse 14, we have the breastplate of righteousness. For the Roman soldier, the breastplate covered the chest to protect it against assaults, arrows, um, sword strikes. Paul uses language like that in Isaiah, um, like, like we find in Isaiah 59, where God puts on righteousness like a breastplate. So I think that was somewhat where I started thinking of King Saul trying to give his armor to David. Um, God himself puts on righteousness like a breastplate, we read in Isaiah 59. And then he gives us that same armor. Once again, we put on the virtues of God. This doesn't refer to... Um, I don't know quite how I want to say this. This, this isn't... I'm not talking about our righteous standing before God right now. I'm talking about how we live and act. Um, the righteousness, breastplate of righteousness, the armor of righteousness. Um, I'm not talking about that you have righteous standing with God because of the blood of Jesus. I'm talking about how you live your life. Um, and yes, you, you can live your life righteously, uh, doing righteous actions because of the power of God and your salvation. But um, th there's a practicalness to this righteousness that we can't lose sight of. We're talking about right living. We're talking about the righteous qualities associated with our new life in Christ that we read about in the book of Ephesians. Um, those righteous qualities are armor for you. You put on the breastplate of righteousness um, so that you don't give an inch to Satan in impurity, lust, greed, um, those things that Paul talked about in chapter 4. Um, you realize and remember who you are in Christ and you live out that identity. Um, verse 15, we have gospel shoes. Um, Paul says, as uh, I want to read this from the ESV, as shoes for your feet, putting on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Um, soldiers have to have the right kind of footwear. Shoes are important. Um, you could go into a shoe store today and find boots and biking shoes and hiking shoes and tennis shoes and basketball shoes and running shoes and baseball cleats and football cleats and sandals and Crocs and flip-flops. And you're going to find a whole wall of all sorts of different stuff. Um, and no, not all of those need to exist. But it does start to show a little bit of there are different types of footwear that are best for different types of activities. Um, I doubt uh, Byron ever goes out on a job site wearing flip-flops. Um, 
I don't think that uh, that would be a very safe or long-lasting uh, footwear to wear. Um, neither do I think that a marathon runner would wear work boots like Byron wears um, on a job site. The soldier, the person going to war, wears footwear appropriate to it. Um, Paul doesn't actually use the word shoes here. There's the implication since we're putting something on our feet. Um, and it's translated a whole bunch of different ways um, and a bunch of different versions, but we don't need to dive into all the interpretation issues. Paul is pretty much making it plain. Believers should always be ready to share the gospel. Um, Isaiah 52 talks about being, uh, being a herald of the good news. Um, that's what you need to be. History does indicate that Roman soldiers were issued really good footwear. They had some um, half boots with studs in them that um, they were able to travel big distances. They covered a lot of ground in a short amount of time. Um, they went into hard places. And sounds a little bit like uh, the correct Christian life. Um, covering distance. Uh, going a lot of places, going into hard places, doing what needs to be done. Paul tells us to take up the whole armor. Um, he doesn't say that, um, well, Andrew can put on the breastplate and he, because you know, he's all about holiness and um, uh, Philip can, can put on the belt because he really likes truth. Um, no, we all are to put on the whole armor. Isaiah 52, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the herald who proclaims peace, who brings news of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Earlier in the book, Paul told us that through the blood of Christ, we're brought near to God. Um, in chapter 2, he says, Jesus is our peace. We are reconciled to God. We enjoy the peace of God through that. And Paul says that Jesus proclaimed the good news of peace in chapter 2, verse 17. Jesus then was the ultimate one with uh, beautiful feet who, who came with his gospel shoes announcing peace to Jews and Gentiles, to those who... Those who know Christ have his peace, and they have that same mission. Um, I don't think if your feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, you can just drift through life, because your mission in life is to go where you can share the truth of who Jesus is. Verse 16, we have the shield of faith. The word Paul uses for shield here is not the um, word that would have generally been used for the, the little shield, like the large frisbee um, that you could have for a lot of mobility. Um, it, uh, the word he uses is the one that was generally used for, for the big shield, the one that was maybe looked like a small door. You know, you could really get behind that and, and block a lot of things. Um, There's in Psalm, I should have wrote down the references. There are a couple Psalms, and uh, Proverbs 30, verse 5, also talks, talks about God as a shield. Um, we have a shield to protect us from the darts of the enemy when we put on Christ, when we believe God and his promises. Um, we believe what he says about us. That's the shield of faith, knowing that God is who he says he is, and that he will do what he says he will do. Verse 17, helmet of salvation. Roman helmets, from what I've read, were very tough, um, often iron or bronze, and they had cheek guards that came down. They had some sort of a sponge lining inside so that they could stand to wear the things. Um, they were heavy. Um, from what I read, probably some of us wouldn't have the neck muscles to even hardly wear those things. And um, they were, they did their job. And here again, I think of, of some of what I read in Isaiah. Um, 
and and we read in Isaiah 59 of uh, helmet of salvation. In in Thessalonians, Paul calls uh, refers to a helmet of the hope of salvation in 1 Thessalonians 5:8. Um, we are to put on the hope that we have in Christ. To resist the devil, you do have to be assured of your salvation. Um, go to God daily and be reminded of of Christ. Um, that's who our hope is in. If you're trusting in him, then you do not have to listen to the devil's lies. Um, you, can, you can tell the devil that you have been saved and that you are being saved from sin's power now and you will one day be saved from sin's presence, um, that you are a child of God, that you're alive with Christ, you're redeemed, you're forgiven, you're uh, reconciled, you're raised with Christ, you're seated with Christ. We've read all those in Ephesians. And then the sword of the Spirit. And the final piece of equipment is an offensive weapon. Um, yes, you could use a sword defensively, but the the sword word that Paul used here is for more the short sword or the dagger, um, the one that would have been used more for thrusting than for defending. Um, God's word... Uh, I'm not sure how to say what, what's what's in my head on this, and I'm also out of time. Pa- Paul uses a different word here when um, when he talks about God's word. Paul usually, when he talks about the gospel and the word of God, he uses logos, but here he uses a word, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, rima maybe, um, and it usually refers to the spoken word. Um, and, and I, I think there's a tie there to, to the gospel and, and speaking the truth. Um, it's not just something that, that you're holding, but it's something that is internal and coming out of you. Um, the word of God is alive and real for you. Um, speaking the gospel, the powerful, effective truth by the Spirit of God um, In the garden, the serpent raised doubt and suspicion about God's word. But don't be deceived. You can trust God's word. You need God's word. It is true. Don't go into battle without the sword. You read it. You meditate on it. You pray it. You you internalize it. And you proclaim it. Very quickly on prayer, Paul doesn't begin a new sentence in verse 18, it's a continuation of a thought. We stand firm against the enemy's schemes through prayer. He doesn't use prayer and tie it to a, a specific um, piece of armor or equipment. We, stir, we, we stand firm against the enemy's schemes through prayer. We take up the sword of the Spirit prayerfully. Throughout the ages, I, I thought about, well, why, why didn't he have a piece of equipment to tie it to? Throughout the ages, communication on the battlefield has been a huge issue and good communication a huge advantage. Um, And prayer is the means by which we call on God to help us. Um, That's how you communicate with your master and your leader when you're in the battlefield. We have a gift that really, I don't know that I can wrap my head around, the ability to communicate with God. Um, And because of the gift of the Spirit, the Christian warrior has constant access to God, even in the middle of war. So, Paul, again, gets personal in the last couple verses. Um, He he talks about, um, well, the brother that probably ended up carrying the letter, but definitely carried a message and good tidings for him. Um, Paul sends him to encourage and uh, spreads the word. He encourages the saints. But again, Paul, we just see Paul's pastor heart there. It's not just a nameless, faceless, um, here's a letter, hope some people read it. Um, The personal connection. That's Paul modeling God. Um, as, as impressed as I can be about Paul's pastor's heart, it really doesn't even start to compare to the, 
the shepherd's heart of God. It's personal. It's for you. It's taken me 16 messages, I think, if I counted right, spread over almost exactly two years. I didn't preach from Ephesians every time I preached here, but um, it was November 22nd of 2020 that I preached from Ephesians 1. Um, We've considered many facts and factors for the Christian life, um, but the last verse, close my Bible too soon here, the last verse of Ephesians um, Paul, I, I really pondered um, how Paul put that. Grace be, so he uses his grace and peace that he uses to often start a passage. Here he has verse 23, peace and love and faith. And verse 24, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. He puts a um, condition on it. Um, that that one really stuck in my head and, and messed with me. He's offering grace to those who sincerely love the Lord. And if you don't love Jesus Christ, none of the facts and factors and things we've looked at and studied and tried to apply from the book of Ephesians matter. Sure, doing things God's way will practically have better success rates than ignoring his approved methods for doing things for life, for relationships. But outside of Christ, outside of a life in him, none of the book of Ephesians really matters. If you do not personally know him and love him, you got some advice that might kind of work. For this to really be a factor for you, it's conditional, just like that last verse and the grace that Paul offers. So my closing challenge is simply be in him. Thank you for your time and attention. God bless you. Can we have a song, please?